Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today on the programme, we're looking back at the 2024 edition of the UBS Financial Services Conference that took place this past week in Key Biscayne, Florida. With so many key industry figures gathered to discuss the state of the sector, the dynamics of the year so far and the direction of travel ahead, we decided to ask two of UBS best and brightest, who were also there this week, to share some reflections. What was the mood music? And from the blockbuster deal that seemed to take almost everyone by surprise to the outlook by banking sector, what other takeaways for smart investors to keep front of mind? Here to unpack a busy few days for us are Brennan Hawken, who covers capital markets in the equity research department in UBS, and first up, Erica Nigerian, who heads large cap bank research in UBS. Erica, first of all, welcome. Great to speak with you. Now, before we jump into the detail of exactly what was discussed, let's roll the clock back a little. Set the scene for us, Erica. What's on the agenda usually ahead of the conference as everyone is heading down to sunny Florida? Yeah, so usually we hear from the management teams, you know, more than the hour that they give us during their January earnings call. And we hear about their priorities and their strategy for the year, right? So it's it's at the 25th, you know, annual time that we've held this conference at this time. And that's the usual agenda. But I will say a couple of things. The usual agenda was essentially hijacked by two factors. First was the blockbuster Capital One Discover deal announcement. And second, the curve just completely changed from when we heard from these management teams last in mid-January. And so what was really cool about this conference is that what we thought we were going to talk about when we all signed up to do this, which was, oh, you know, the soft landing, six rate cuts, you know, the election, you know, we ended up having a wrench thrown in our agenda. Well, yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I guess this idea of surprises or a bit of what you call it, volatility, tumult of different types. We've kind of, well, 24s, it's kind of started a little bit like that, hasn't it? Almost wherever you look. So perhaps we shouldn't have been surprised. Yeah. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised, right? Because 23 was definitely, you know, the the failures of the three banks that were considered high quality by many investors, by the lion's share investors, that was definitely not on my bingo card. But, you know, while a lot of people were very skeptical about the six cuts that were priced into the curve and were being more hawkish, you know, I think the Capital One Discovery deal really took everybody by surprise. And I would say that what's the most interesting about what I like to call a destination conference, where you're not in a major city like New York and San Francisco or Boston, where everybody goes back home to their their domiciles, you know, the water cooler conversations are really the most interesting. And it's really sort of what is the pulse of the corporates? What's the pulse of the investors? And it really was about Capital One and Discover. Well, yeah. And just before we uh, drill down in a bit more detail into the nature of those water cooler discussions, as you as you described them, Erica, tell me a bit about the other backdrops, because I suppose I always find it interesting on this side of the pond to imagine that Every conversation in some way has, in a general election year, you know, the, the presidential race a little bit in, in the backdrop. Was that announcement so big that it even kind of blew that out of the water? Or is that always still kind of there in the background? It must be something that people, I guess, have in mind, I suppose. Absolutely. And it's always there in the background. So let's maybe pull up and zoom out and think about what were the broad themes for the conference. So 
one of the broadest takeaways from the conference that have come out is the U.S. consumer just remains unbelievably strong. And, you know, the joke on both the fireside presentations and during the, you know, meetings, the private meetings with investors is that the banks needed to come up with a word other than resilient to describe the U.S. customer. So, you know, a couple things. So, as you know, Bank of America is one of the largest banks in terms of gathering, you know, regular consumer deposits here in the United States. Did you know that they said to us that their average consumer depositor still has 24% higher balances, 24% higher balances than they did in 2019? I mean, I think that's pretty remarkable if you think about how liquid the U.S. consumer, at least the B of A consumer, has stayed. A lot of the card companies like Amex and Synchrony, I know those are sort of, and those represent two ends of the U.S. consumer spectrum, one super prime and one less so. You know, they both have very good things to say about, you know, how much the U.S. consumer is still taking care of their credit card credit, you know, how the payment rates are still pretty good. And J.P. Morgan, who's a juggernaut in card, is saying the same thing. You know, a clear takeaway is that the U.S. consumer, you know, remains super strong. Private credit was definitely a phrase and, you know, something that was very, very much talked about, not just on stage, but in in meetings. And the banks were essentially saying that they're not necessarily competing head to head, you know, with private credit for the same deals. And the third thing I would say is definitely the election is of utmost importance. And I think that the election was very much top of mind as the banks thought about the different scenarios and outcomes for, you know, regulation and also consolidation outside of Capital One and Discover. Yeah, that that's super interesting. J- just on that point about consumer sentiment and consumer mood, because a couple of things that I've read which have struck me as quite interesting, Erica, against that backdrop you described is that there seems to be a bit of a sort of funny, I don't know what you call it, a divergence between, yeah, the, the reported sort of mood of US consumers amidst that surprisingly strong economic picture. I mean, is it fair to say that it is a little bit contrary or confusing? I know some economists sort of find it a bit strange. Is it because borrowing costs are still a bit elevated? Or I mean, I don't know. Do you even agree that there is a bit of a difference there? I don't think it's borrowing costs. I think it's the cost to live your life, right? So keep in mind that in the United States, your, your mortgage is mostly fixed rate, right? And so your borrowing costs have not really significantly increased, you know, in terms of housing. But of course, if you're renting, you know, what you felt is, is the impact of inflation. So I think this is a really great question. And I think it's really the difference between being employed and still being liquid and how annoying it is to pay more for everything, right? So I, I can understand why both can coexist because if you're a renter, for example, and your rent continues to go up, or if your you know, latte is 10 US dollars, that's annoying and taxing. And so I can understand why the sentiment, the negative sentiment exists under the background of actual relative health. You know, it it makes sense that what shapes your sentiment about the economy is what's happening day to day, even if you're liquid and even if you're employed. 
Erica, let me get you to just cast an eye forwards then for us. It must be so interesting to be on the ground at a conference like this. As you said, you get to hear from everybody. You get to hear what's, you know, in the reports, but you also get to hear the the, the kind of the, the dynamics that are unfolding on the, on the margins. What were people talking about in terms of the next things to look out for? Obviously, we know heading to November, of course, the general election, that's a, that's a big thing. But were there other kind of markers that people were eager to say, well, you know, let's wait and see by this moment in Q2 or this in, in H2? What, what other things were people looking to mark their cards with if we look a little bit further ahead? Sure. So further ahead, in January, when we were having events like this, everybody was convinced that the Fed was going to cut. Looking ahead, now investors are, you know, are thinking about taking all of the cuts from the curve in 2024. Right. Also looking forward, you know, certain investors were quietly thinking about, is there going to be a shoe to drop in private credit? And how do we invest in that shoe dropping? You know, it's not been, you know, successful. Obviously, private credit is an engine that keeps on going. But, you know, that's definitely a what can we look for that's the next idea over the next 12 to 24 months. And obviously, look, the election, you know, continues to, you know, swing around. And I think, honestly, it's probably a little bit too early for investors to position around an outcome. Just one, one final quick thought. You know, lots of the conversations I had, particularly with other colleagues across UBS stateside, was about this broad brush confidence in a sort of you know, soft landing, 24, whatever you want to call it. I know we've now heard, and again, this is probably a narrative at the conference, lots of the big players maybe being a little bit more cautious about some overconfidence in terms of that soft landing. Would you say that's a fair, a fair snapshot of the picture? No, I, I think that they're still confident that we could engineer a soft landing. It's just the less confidence that's, you know, going to be compatible with much lower rates, which which makes sense to me. So I would say that coming out of that conference, there was more confidence in, in terms of a near-term soft landing, right? But if, if the economy is so strong and, you know, the Fed may not feel compelled to cut, what does that mean for 25? And obviously, everybody continues to be concerned about commercial real estate, particularly in office and flats or apartments. But I actually felt like, you know, the sentiment around a soft landing was probably stronger than I expected. Erica Nigerian. Well, next up, let's hear from Brennan Hawken, who covers capital markets in the equity research department in UBS. Great to welcome you back from Florida and to the program, Brennan. Good to have you on the show. Tell us just briefly, first of all, what about the sort of the tone of the conference? Upbeat generally, but maybe a little uneven, I guess that would be fair to say. And I know that there's maybe some differences in terms of traditional asset managers, wealth management firms, maybe investment banks too, different kinds of inflection points and dynamics. Just give give us a bit of a kind of an overview about the mood music from where you've just been. Sure, Tom. It's an important distinction, actually. Covering capital markets, I actually cover five different business models. So I cover investment banks, I cover alternative asset managers, I cover traditional asset managers, I cover trust banks, I cover wealth management firms. So the mood music, I would say, we'll start from the most optimistic and we'll work our way down. So probably two top groups would be the alt asset managers and the investment banks, but alts probably first. The alts are growing businesses. 
They do have secular tailwinds where they're continuing to see growing allocations to their investment vehicles that really the benefits of, of that type of investing has really been sort of proven out over the past few decades. And there's a lot of strength behind those firms from a secular basis. Things have been gummed up for that flywheel of theirs on the fundraising and deployment side. As activity begins to pick up, that should inject oil into that machine. And that should loosen up that gummed up system and get the flywheel going again. The investment banks, particularly those that cater heavily to the sponsor community, they were really quite bullish in the meetings. Now, they're not seeing the the activities, the triggers haven't been pulled yet, but effectively the narrative right now is that, okay, uh, strategics are active. So the sponsors realistically are very likely to be selling to strategics. So any sponsor that has a position that they want to monetize, they are preparing these pitch books. And the quote that I thought was most telling coming out of the conference was, you have to have at least one strategic on your buy list in order for the deal to be considered viable in the current market. And so that's considered to be the likely avenue to inject fresh capital into that gummed up flywheel, get it going again. So alts and investment banks, particularly those that cater to the sponsors, probably most optimistic, although not happening yet, expected to begin to happen here in the first half of this year, but really not get going probably until the back half. So that's probably the most optimistic side of things. Um, Wealth managers would be next. And these are also growing businesses, not quite to the same magnitude as the alternative asset managers, but they generally do grow, mid-single-digit growers over a long term. And these are firms that have the relationships with the end investors. These are, you know, the wirehouses of the world, you know, the Morgan Stanleys, the Merrill Lynch's, but also independent firms, firms like LPL and Ameriprise. These firms generally are seeing the growth that had been robust coming out of the pandemic due to all the stimulus tail off. It's not as great of a market to grow. So there are some headwinds, but it's still positive. They're also seeing what we call cash sorting. And this was really the issue for 2023, where all of us have probably done this to some degree. You're not paid sufficiently on your cash in your bank account. And so you go out and you figure out what the minimum amount you can keep in the bank account to avoid fees. And then any excess cash, you move over into a higher yielding alternative, money fund, CDs, something of that nature. That exact dynamic happened within the wealth management business. And one of the main ways in which, in which wealth managers make money is by monetizing cash, what we call deposit spreads. Those balances diminished and created a bit of a headwind for those companies for much of 2023. The good news is, is the sorting seems to be swelling. We're going to have to get through tax season in a couple months, which is a rather large event within the wealth management industry, just seasonally in the US. And once we get through there, we can have a better idea about what the cash trends are and whether or not the stability we're beginning to see is sustainable. And we're going to actually start to potentially grow the cash balances again. So they are coming to the end of what had been a bit of a, a storm or stormier weather in that business. And so the mood music in the wealth management business is improving 
had been rather more of a negative tilt, and now it's getting better. And Brennan, I guess just to wrap this little snapshot, who's left as we cycle through the capital market spectrum towards the, I suppose, the the less optimistic end? Trust banks would probably be next. Trust banks are deposit-driven organizations as well. Very similar dynamics to wealth managers, except they don't have as good of a growth profile. They're more like non-growers or low single-digit growers, highly competitive business, minimal differentiation between providers. So there's a lot of price competition, but they're at least beginning to see some stability in their balance sheets. Deposits are showing some early signs of stability, which is encouraging. And then finally, you have traditional asset managers, secular pressure on this business. The shift to passive is a big headwind here over the long run. It's been a struggle for them to grow. And moreover, they're high market sensitive. So when we saw the bear market of 2022, margins, profit margins got hit very, very hard. And they're largely in cost cutting mode, which can be challenging in such a competitive environment and a competitive marketplace where there's a need to make investments. So they basically have to self-fund the investments through all sorts of efficiency efforts. It's challenging, challenging to find some growth. And as a result, what we have seen over the last 15 years is just the the relative multiple on traditional asset managers compress very, very steadily. It's a classic upper left to lower right chart, which is not good. (laughs) And so unfortunately there, the optimism is pretty limited and they're still dealing with a lot of challenges and trying to right-size the expense base. Brennan Hawken. And that brings us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance each week. Do listen again and explore more at monocle.com. You can also follow this program wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, you can discover more and find out how UBS can help you at ubs.com. This is The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening.